Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name is Brom Burton. And I'm the cabin boy. How are you, cabin boy? I'm very, very good. Yeah. Great just, to see ya. Just come back from uh, Anglesey. So, oh, uh, really? Yeah. So, uh, kind of a little bit crusty, but all ready to go. Did you come up this morning? Yeah, oh, yeah. My, last time you came up from Phillip Island. I know. I, I don't know how I plan these weekends out. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, my God, I've got too much on. How am I going to fit up? So I got up at 5.30. Oh but, my. yeah, I saw the sunrise. Yeah. Do you know what? It's beautiful just driving early in the morning. No cars on the road. You know, there's no... No kind of pressure to speed, not yeah. that I do. And yeah. it's just, yeah, it's just been a beautiful morning. Yeah. I do need to clean my teeth, though. <laughs> Sorry for sharing that. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not detectable, Gabby Boy, so you can feel quite relaxed. <laughs> Excellent. Um, thank you very much, Tim, for Vital Bits. Thank you, uh, as always, uh, for six hours of incredible radio. Um, every weekend, uh, I have listened to a lot of it this weekend. It's been very lovely. And thank you to Andrew for Soulful Bits. Buddy guy this morning, that was wonderful. Uh, and uh, I wasn't listening to Things to Do Today. Was it Edith presenting? It, it was. was. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Edith, for Things to Do Today. We were chatting in the green room about our show coming up. So um, should we launch into what that's all about? Jam-packed. It is. So um, this... It's funny today, you know, we've talked about this on before on the program that often we end up with themes that just sort of emerge out of what we plan and mostly it's not planned that way. It's no. just kind of, oh, look, these pieces all fit together and, and that's what's happened today. It so, just morphs together, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. So today's all about discovery. I suppose you could say that's the same for, you know, every show, but this one in particular. So first up, we're, uh, we're taking a look at... Um, an area in Port Phillip Bay known as the Ship's Graveyard. And Rex is uh, coming in and to talk about that, but he's brought in a very special guest, Jim Anderson. Jim's one of the original graveyard divers from a group known as the Geelong Skin Divers. I believe they're still going and have been diving the Ship's Graveyard for 50 years. So it's the 50th anniversary of, um, of oh, diving wow. the ship's graveyard and yeah. Jim has been doing it the whole time. It sounds so spooky though, doesn't it? Diving the ship's graveyard. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so we can ask him about that. Um, we've been having a bit of a chat in the green room and uh, oh, there's some pretty interesting stories from all those years of diving the graveyard. So we'll talk with both Rex and Jim about that very soon. Uh, then very excited to welcome into the studio Graham Patterson, who is an author and has recently published a new book. This is number three in his series of Coastal Guides to Nature and History of Port Phillip, uh, no, nature and History of the um, Victorian Coastline. So the first one was Port Phillip Bay. The second one was Mornington Peninsula's Ocean Shore Western Port Phillip Island and French Island, and he's just released the third one, Western Victoria, which is Point Lonsdale to the South Australian border. So when he was in studio back in 2015, so mm. seven years ago, and I remember at the time saying to him, Cabin Boy, are you going to do a third one? And if you do, can you let us know? Yeah. And, and he's done it. Wow. So fantastic. Seven years taken? Yes. Yes. So, it's a lot of coast, though. It is, and mm. he's walked the whole lot. Oh, has he really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So really uh, looking forward to having Graham back in studio. And then, if that wasn't enough, continuing our theme of discovery, we're going to cross to Ben Francis Shelley. 
Um, I'm calling him ours, cabin boy. Oh, well and truly. What has he found, though, Bron? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is very exciting. So there's been lots of talk of evidence of a megalodon. and We so want one, don't we? We do. <laughs> and this is where it gets very exciting. We, he thinks he's found his first concrete evidence of not only the megalodon but the ancestral father oh my God. slash mother. Yes. We can ask him about that. Mm. terminology, but anyway, um, of the first one in Australia. So we've had a few kind of, you know, maybe yeah. what I've called solid possibles before, um, but this week it's very fresh. He's found this extraordinary tooth and it's estimated to date back to more than 17 million years of age. I reckon it's a mega megalodon tooth. I reckon. <laughs> you heard it first on Marinara. <laughs> I just hope Ben doesn't suddenly become catapulted to fame and we lose him forever. Oh. This might backfire. No, surely not. <laughs> no. We love our big announcements yeah. on Radio Marinara. Triple R. Um, we've got a couple of minutes to talk about some news. I believe you've brought some in, Kevin Boyd. I've got a little bit of news to do, do with sailing, which is good. Oh, so cool. uh, <laughs> there's an introduction to sailing by the uh, the New Haven Yacht Squadron down there on Phillip Islands putting it on. It's on Thursday the 22nd to Friday the 23rd. And what's special about this is it's a sailability program and it involves children and adults with special needs. They've got these little special dinghies there called Hansat Little Dinghies. Um, they're untippable and they're kind of designed so you can get a wheelchair or someone with limited um, movement in there and they will be taught how to sail and, and rig the boat and all that. So uh, as I said, if you're interested for that, it's the 22nd, 23rd of December, Um Email stanjack15 at gmail.com or just jump onto the website for the Yacht Club, nys.org.au. As I said, down in Phillip Island, further across the um, Bass Strait, the Australian Wooden Boat Festival is going ahead Uh next year. Well and truly planned. It's the uh, 10th and 13th of February 2023, and it's now recognised as the most significant event of its kind in Australia. The festival not only attracts visitors from all over the world, but boats from far and wide are on display on the water and on the docks. Uh, So it's the first one back after COVID, so it seems good. The only worry I reckon will be the weather because mm. uh, boats are coming down from Sydney, Melbourne and Adelaide and, you know, they're only small kind of cruising boats. It's whether they're going to get a, uh, a window of weather to get across Bass Strait. So that may dampen the uh, attendance of the boats at Hobart. What kind of window of weather would we be looking at? Well, you'd, you'd want a good week if you're leaving from Melbourne to get across Bass Strait. So, yeah. Okay. yeah. And, you know, it's got to be in the right direction and not too strong. As I, There's plenty of islands in Bass Strait to kind of shelter behind, but often if you're on a uh, short kind of time length, you kind of want to get it right. So uh, it's either going to take you a month or take you a week. So <laughs> it's does, one of those things. Does La Nina make a difference with sailing, with sailing weather? Well... It's just unpredictable. Yeah. You know, like when you look at the past month, we have had so much wind, it's up and down, and it's not just a little wind, it's a hell of a lot of wind. Mm. So, yeah, so, you you know, all the boats going across there, which hopefully I'll be one of them, you're just going to have to, yeah, really, really watch that weather. Yep. Thanks, Kevin Boy. Pleasure. You got another one? No, that's about it. Um, that's good. Yeah. So, yeah, plenty of sailing happening. Uh, yeah, just got to get out there. But again, not much diving happening because of the weather, not much sailing happening because of the weather. It's just, yeah, it's just unpredictable. We can just talk about it instead. Yes, yeah, in the warm studio. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Uh, now, for 50 years, keen divers have been exploring an area of Port Phillip Bay called the Ship's Graveyard. It's a place notorious for dangerous waters that have claimed many ships attempting to navigate their heads through the rip. To talk about the Ship's Graveyard, uh, 50 years of diving and p- particular perspective of a very special diver who's been diving them the whole time. Welcome, Rex Hunter, I've given you a pretty fancy welcome because you're here with us a lot. Well, I haven't been diving there for 50 years, but we just happened to have a guy who was driving past and uh, <laughs> we dragged him in, Jim Anderson. Jim was one of the first divers, or the, the a group of first divers, to dive the site in 1972. So well, while we were listening to Donnie, uh, Donnie Osmond singing Puppy Love, Jim was out doing something serious. <laughs> And dive in the ship's graveyard and having real fun. And enjoying it, yes. <laughs> I'm now questioning your music choice, Jim Rex. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. It's Thank wa- you. wonderful to have you here. Rex has been... Uh, it's spe- a real pleasure. He said wonderful things about you and been wanting to bring you in for a long time, so it's great that we're finally here. Tell us about the ship's graveyard. Well, the ship, the designated ship's graveyard is an area, um, spoil ground out off Torquay, it's actually the closest point would be going off Torquay, but so it's south of um, Bowen Heads Ocean Grove area and pretty well straight off Torquay. So you've got to travel a little bit further from Ocean Grove to get to it out of the, uh, the river there at uh, Bowen Heads. And um, to, uh, most of the times we were diving out of uh, Torquay on it. But um, there's about 20 wrecks in this spoil ground area. Um, but I've heard the in recent times I've heard uh, Port Phillip Heads called a shipwreck's graveyard, which is true to some degree because there's an awful lot around there. But the actual designated uh, ship's graveyard is that area, the spoil ground out off uh, Torquay Bowen yeah. Heads. I've just made that mistake myself. I always thought <laughs> no. it was the one near the rip. So yeah, yeah, well, there's a lot of wrecks there. Yeah, yeah. and they've uh, let's see, eye of the needle, I think it's been called too, and threading trying to thread the uh, the. Uh, ships through the heads there and a lot have come to grief but uh, the actual graveyard is to it but there are uh, when I say that there's about pretty close to 20 wrecks in that uh, spoil ground there and uh, there's almost another 20 outside that towards Port Phillip heads uh, out in deep water you know um, 80 uh, 80 feet to um, 200 or 60 metres down uh, in that area scattered. So how, how did you actually dive, come to dive it, Jim? I mean, because it was a long time ago. This was before people had GPSs, depth, proper depth sounds. That's right, yeah. So how did you actually come to dive? Well, the Geelong Skin Divers Club uh, used to do a lot of diving out of Torquay and um, occasionally we'd be meeting up with a professional fisherman there who were using the same uh, boat ramp. Um, not so much that they'd have their boat moored, but they'd be coming ashore. And we got to know them. Jeff Naylor uh, uh, got to know them very well. He's uh, one of the lead divers in the club. And um, there, there was talk of uh, diving the ships or the wrecks that are out there because the professional fishermen, cray fishermen, were pulling rusty crayfish up. So they knew they, there was a, uh, they were on wrecks. And um, they, uh, Jeff uh, approached them one day about taking a group of divers that were qualified, or we thought they were, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> we seemed, well, I'll explain some of the gear we were using on the time, but anyway, um, shortly, 
Um, yeah, so it was put to them, could you take us out? And they said, sure. So this is in 1972. There weren't as many boats about for the individuals. And it was, seemed a fair way offshore for us to, to venture. And uh, so I remember the very first dive, I was up at about five in the morning to greet the fishermen at, um, with the other fellas that were diving. Um, at about because they left at six in the morning to go to sea, and um, and which is pretty early for us, but anyway, <laughs> uh, we did that. Got, <laughs> took all the gear out to their moored uh, fishing boat, and I think it was about eleven o'clock before we got in the water because we uh, they had to lay their nets and retrieve their nets before we went diving and had fun. Yeah. So what sort of gear were you? I mean, these yeah. days we got BCs. Yes. We have you know super high high pressure tanks. We have. Incredible regulators and soft right. breathing. What sort of gear were you using? Not to, not to mention dive computers. Yeah, dive That's computer. right. Yeah, well, no, the, um, the well, more, speaking, speaking personally, I, I had a single 72 cubic foot tank, <laughs> no, no pr- contents gauge, which is a pressure gauge to measure how much air you've got <gasps> in your tank. No contents no gauge. No contents gauge. Yeah, I had a what was called then a J valve. Um, yep. So uh, you, when uh, a breath was you were feeling some restriction on it. The idea, not that it happened in the graveyard, you'd pull the lever that's on the J-valve and then that would open a valve on the tank okay. so you could uh, breathe there and then you'd make your way to the surface. So never got to use that on the graveyard dive, the first one, fortunately. Um, yeah, so we just um, guessed it, I guess, and uh, we had our time restrictions, and uh, which was only down, I can't remember actually, I think we were down about six minutes or something like that, might have been seven, might have been five, five, six, seven minutes, and um, and then made our way up. So uh, so how deep are we talking? Uh, say 45 metres, round, round figures. Yes. So to put it in context for listeners who aren't familiar with diving and the relevance of depth, the deeper you go the less time you have yes. and it's all to do with... Taking nitrogen on board that's in right. the body. Yeah. And there's a couple of factors here. There's the decompression issue, Yes, um, but there's also the issue of narcosis. So the deeper you go, the more likely you are to get what's called NARC, which yes. is nitrogen narcosis. It's kind of... it's. I'm it, tr- trying to think of an it's equivalent. A, it's like, well, like being slightly intoxicated, intoxicated without being uh, the merry bit around it. Yeah. So it's quite it's quite serious. It is. Is that sense? Yeah. Because you lose your brain function and your yeah. ability to to focus. Yep. And how did you find that? Uh, how did you deal I with did, that? I didn't notice any on that particular dive, but right. you can get some dives where it, it does come along. I had a dive out on the fiftieth anniversary uh, of the first dive a few weekends ago. The organ- group were organised. Mark Ryan was involved with that, and. Um, uh, I didn't have any, and that was visibility. It was very poor down at the bottom, down to luckily a metre. It yep. might not even been that. But I had no sensation that I could recall. I remember thinking, oh, am I narked here or no? No, and that's the, that's the term, narked. Yeah. So, um, and that, now they get around that, some of the deeper dives, using helium in the mix instead of uh, pulling out some of the nitrogen and mixing oxygen and they have a trimix sometime too. You mentioned uh, qualified divers. Were there qualifications back there to dive that Yeah, deep? there were, but not many. Uh, Jeff Nala was one in the club teaching us and qualifying us, I guess, and giving yeah. a tick. And a, but there was uh, something going in Melbourne, I can't remember the name of the business, that uh, that was about the only one, but not too many people mm. had that. 
It was uh, all based off the British qualifications, I think, back then, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, and some American. Yeah, stuff, okay. Yeah, the British Sub Aqua Club um, and uh, a lot of American stuff. And the tables we were using, the decompression tables, I favoured the British ones. Uh, they were more conservative than the uh, American. I remember for 100 feet, um, for example, I think the Americans were 30 metres. The Americans would give us 25 minutes and the British, uh, British sub-aqua cup tables were 20, 20 minutes. So, you know, they were just working on the safety side of things. And, um, and I was using and still use uh, sometimes when I'm not using the dive computer, uh, the British sub-aqua cup tables. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, if anybody's ever tried to use a set of decompression tables, it's, yeah, it's yes, pretty yeah, complex yeah, and you need yeah. to remember all your bottom times well, and stick stick to them. When yeah. I, I learned to dive in the late 80s, this was pre-dive computer era and it was just given you had to learn how to oh, use yeah, tables. Yeah. That's how it was. That's right. There was no... That's just what it was. We didn't have dive computers. Because you go from table A to table B to table C and then add this and take this off. And Yeah, I never went that deep. Big old, how old your auntie May is and then... It's a, that's right. It's all down to uh, repetitive dives. It was, it's quite easy, isn't it, for one dive? Yeah. But if you're going to do a second dive and a third dive, well, you've got to calculate all how much nitrogen you've taken on board with a first and second dive. And We'll have to wrap yeah. up reasonably soon. I could yeah. talk to you for the rest of the show just yeah. on this alone. 50 years of diving the ship's graveyard. Are you still diving them? Uh, well, I did three weekends ago, but it had wow. been, uh, been a while since I'd been out there. Amazing. But I still dive. Uh, I was out with Peter recently. And also Rex. And also Rex, yes. <laughs> also Rex. Do you have a favourite wreck that you go to? Uh, uh, probably uh, interested in history. And I think my uh, Scammell's very good at, at Torquay. Uh, but I think my favourite's the Lightning, which is a famous ship in Geelong, and it's zero visibility basically when you dive that. And um, why is the vis so bad? Uh, as soon as you touch the bottom or get near the bottom, ah, the silt it just up. stirs up, and you go around with your arms driven into the silt, feeling for pieces of the wreck which are still there. And uh, so that and the history associated with that wreck, the Lightning, it's quite famous, and um, so I enjoy that. Tell yeah. us a little bit about the lightning, just for yeah. thirty seconds. It still holds records to to this day. Um, what from here to three hundred and four hundred and fifty six nautical, nautical miles, miles in one twenty four hour period. Oh wow! Which is like sailing, as Peter uh, Rex says, <laughs> Rex. <laughs> Um, like sailing from Melbourne to Hobart. Oh, sorry, uh, Adelaide, isn't it? Yeah, in a day. Oh, in, in a, a day. day. In a clipper ship. That's a clipper crazy. Ship, yeah. How in old a, was it? When was it? Eighteen sixties. Right. Fifties. Eighteen fifties. Wow. Yeah. When it was setting the records, eighteen in the eighteen fifties. And that's your favourite one. That's my favourite, but not not to look at. Yeah. <laughs> also found by Jim and Jeff Jeff Naylor as well. So oh, that's right. Yeah, oh, we're involved pi- finding it. These guys are real pioneers, and just they're amazing. Wow. Are there more to find out there? Oh God, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It never stops. Rex is the man there for that sort of <laughs> pass. The mantle's been passed. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Big bo- booster full, Phil. Yeah. Uh, Will yeah. you come in next year? I'd like to explore this more because there's just so much to talk about, and I just feel like one session with you is not enough, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have to come from Geelong? Yes. Yeah, that's Did you no come up from deal. Geelong this morning? Yes, oh, no big deal. You guys yeah. could have carpooled. We could have, yes. I might <laughs> pass you on the Geelong Road. Ah, dear. Yeah. Well, it's a long way to come, but maybe we, we can try and organise it because it'd be great to 
continue yeah, well, the conversation. My, my main uh, interest in diving is wrecks, shipwrecks. So um, yeah, and um, yeah, there's plenty of those around. Let's talk more. Yeah. Are you celebrating Great. the 50 years? We did with that anniversary dive three weekends or thereabouts ago. So yeah, that and was Jim's a, amazing. He's, that he's was... a living legend amongst us. <laughs> well, thanks for bringing Jim in, Rex. <laughs> thanks. Pleasure. And th- yeah. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's no. been a pleasure too. Absolutely. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Rex. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Rex. Thanks, well, Jim. <laughs> well, we'll catch you in a couple of weeks, Rex, for our final show, oh, hopefully, yeah, yeah, well, if often. you want to come in. Oh. <laughs> Depends what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You might be out diving. <laughs> Don't put you yourself <laughs> out. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, Jim, very much for coming Thank in. You. Thank thanks, you. Rex, as always. Really thanks. is. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Now, back in 2015 on this program, we spoke with author Graham Patterson about two coastal guides he'd written on the nature and history of the Victorian coastline. The first was around Port Phillip Bay, and the second covered Mornington Peninsula's ocean shoreline, including Western Port, Phillip Island, and French Island. At the time, we were so impressed by the guides and asked Graham to come back with any more, should they happen in the future. And look, here we are. <laughs> Graham has recently published the third in his series, Coastal Guide to Nature and History, Western Victoria from Point Lonsdale in the South to the South Australian border. So to tell us all about it and where you can get a copy for yourselves, it's with great pleasure we welcome back to Radio Marinara, Graham Patterson. Good morning, Graham. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you back. Yeah, good. <laughs> Congratulations on this wonderful book. Thanks very much. I was so excited when you emailed um, and <laughs> said, "Oh, you know, I don't know if you remember you were back. You, you know, you had me on your program seven years ago." Yeah, I'd forgotten how, <laughs> how long ago <laughs> it was. You said 2015. I'm thinking, oh yeah, a couple of years ago. Yeah. <laughs> I went, oh wow, that's seven years ago. So, um, yeah, casting your mind back to then, um, had you planned to write a third one? Oh, yes, I did have it in my head that I could do a third one. I also had it in my head that I might do a fourth one, but I don't think that's going to happen. Okay. Because the eastern uh, shore of Victoria hasn't been covered. Yes, that's right. Anyway. It's important to say that you've walked this entire distance. So this isn't just you kind of, you know, getting onto Google and looking up information or anything like that. I did a bit of that. (laughs) Well, that too. I I will ask you about that stuff. But, yeah, but you've, you've... You've walked the walk. It yes. take him seven years. You've literally yeah. more, than, more than seven years. When I talked to you last, I hadn't finished it. Okay. And there were still some stretches down uh, on the 90-mile beach, which are really hard to do because, you know, it's a narrow strip of sand mm. and on the land side there's the Gippsland lakes that you can't get across, you can't yeah. walk across. And you get to some points where they, you just, they wouldn't be accessible. No. Well, I was lucky enough to – someone took me over in their boat from Painesville and I covered the last stretch of the 90-mile beach in 2018. It did require for you to make a lot of friends to get you here and there with <laughs> Well, boats. I, yes. I put the message out that I was trying to do it. Yeah. I did a little bit of paddling across the Gippsland Lakes. Yeah, amazing. Beside oh. dolphins at Lakes Entrance. Fantastic. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, there's real commitment there. Well, congratulations. It's a beautiful book. Um I want to cast you, if you can cast your mind back a little bit further, when did you decide to produce these books? Like, where did it all start for you? Well, I'd started to have the idea for a book much later than I'd started with the crazy idea of walking around the Victorian coast. So, you know, it's about the 1990s, really, that I think I started walking. And then, you know, I'm interested in what I see, so I think... You know, what's that rock formation? 
what are the plants and animals that I'm seeing? What's that old jetty? What, how was that used? And I started then getting onto Google, not so much, library. Yeah. <laughs> um, and looking up all the information. So I started to amass a pile of notes and then, then only then... Uh, I decided it might be a book. And there's, this comes out in the book. I'll mention there's a couple of little bits I'll mention in a little bit. Okay. But, um, but it's really it's really clear that, like, I'm assuming, have you gone into microfiche? Like, have you gone into uh, old records? Yes, I have. Yeah. Uh, newspapers are fantastic. Trove um, is a website that's got all these old newspapers and they're, they're a treasure trove, literally. <laughs> uh, yes. And spoken with people as well? Yeah, Um I got help from a lot of people in the local historical societies, field naturalist club, that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. It's really good and it really, really comes out in the book. It's it's clearly not a Google researched book. Like you can just tell from the depth of yeah. detail that you go into here. Um, and there are – we'll go through chapter by chapter in a minute, but you've got um uh, like uh, Melway's kind of um, references and, and I love that. <laughs> There's probably people listening and thinking, fish. I don't know what Melways is. I, I think what, what are young people going to make of these maps? Probably never seen a map on paper before. Melways was what existed prior to Google Maps. So <laughs> it was like a big chunky book that people kept in the back of their car or in the front of their car. Yeah. Rachel still yeah, does. Rachel still got it. I'm really pleased to hear you say that. My folks do as well. They still love their Melways. And then there was a, there was an alternative which was kind of like the beta to the VHS. CBD or something. Yeah. yeah. Never really worked. No. I think Melways was kind of like the gold standard. But anyway, you've got um, you've got little bits of Melways sort of re- replicated throughout they're, this as well. They're actually – the Melways doesn't cover uh, a lot of the west coast of Victoria, so they're actually from a uh, a business called Spatial Vision, okay. which gets their maps from VicMap. Oh, okay, so it's not Melways. There's some in there. Yeah. That's copyrighted. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, no, I've got permission. <laughs> I reckon we should dive in and take a yeah. look at it. So Coastal Guide to Nature and History, Western Victoria, from Point Lonsdale to the South Australian border. So this is a really big, big amount. You know, this is a large amount of area that you've covered here and you've walked the whole thing. I just really want to emphasise that, that you have walked from Point Lonsdale to the South Australian border, obviously not in one go. No, no. It's, uh, <laughs> so there's four key chunks. Let's go through them in turn. So Point Lonsdale to Lawn. Just can you summarise that section for us? Oh, well, it's it's the surf coast, the popular surf coast. And um, really it all started in Lawn because my parents had a house there, so we'd go down all the time. So I started doing walks along the coast out from Lawn and and... Uh, the idea developed from then. Yeah. Um, it's it's a lovely coastline, you know, long, well, not so long, uh, beaches but with headlands and um, you can walk pretty much all of it. There's um, official walks. There's a surf coast walk. Uh, you, you can really walk all of it without any problem. You sometimes end up on the road but... You can see it all. So you camped overnight while you did this walk? No, I, I didn't camp much. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I camped from the car. Yeah. Because getting water on the coast is a yeah, problem. Jeff. So if you've got, a, you got camping gear and you've got water for overnight, so I avoided that. And I, I, I sometimes stuck with it. And I guess you're taking notes, photo, photographs Photos. and everything, things like that. So. Yeah, the notes were... In retrospect, usually. Oh, okay. <laughs> Good memory. Yeah. <laughs> what would be the highlights of Point Lonsdale to Lawn? 
of that chapter? Oh, it has to be lawn for me because I have a, an affinity yeah. for the place. Um, There's but, something in that too, isn't there, which is really deeply personal. So for me it would be Anglesey and that because I have that childhood uh, yeah. memory. Yeah. And I find that with people who buy the book, they, they go first to where yeah. the, the place that they used to go for yeah. holiday. Same on Port Phillip as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, the second section is from Lawn to Princetown. People might be not familiar with Princetown. Princetown's, uh, it's hardly a town. Um, I, I think... Pretty much the general stores are even closed now. But it's around on the western side of Cape Otway. So this is basically a rocky, rocky cliff uh, section of the coast mm-hmm. going from Apollo Bay around to Princetown. Yeah. And uh, the, there's an official walk there too the, called the Great Ocean Walk, uh, which dives off the Great Ocean Road to stick as close as it can uh, to the coast. Yep. Uh, and it's great. I mean, it's a rocky uh, rocky scenery all along pretty much. Yeah. And some places are hardly ever visited except by walkers. And it's much less, um, I guess, developed part of that coastline too because when you sort of think about Point Lonsdale to Lawn, you've got obviously Point Lonsdale, right. you've got Torquay and Anglesey right. and some, some really established yeah. Places, um, but then once you sort of leave Lawn and then head off to Princetown, it sort of becomes a. It's a different world. It's a different world. Then the next section is Princetown to Port Ferry, so that would include. That's the that includes the fantastic uh, clifft coast around Port Campbell, of course. Yeah, and um, that's surprisingly walkable. Too. Mm. Um, I should stress that the book is not really. Uh, especially for walkers. Yeah. Uh, there's plenty of information that you can use when you go down to spots all along the coast in the car. Yep. Um, but... Uh, it, it really delves into the history of these places. And yeah, I'll, that's I'll get right. And I'll that in just a sec. Yeah. And then the last section is Port Ferry to the South Australian border. That's a big piece of... Um, that's a, a big <laughs> piece it, of geography as well. <laughs> that's mostly on uh, what's called the Great so- South West Walk, so probably the longest beach... Well, it has to be the second long, longest beach after the 90-mile beach is Discovery Bay, which goes right up to uh, South Australia. Did you breathe a sigh of relief when you got to Nelson? Was Nelson oh, the last no, sort of it main wasn't, place you no, covered? Okay, so what's uh, after it, it Nelson? It wasn't a – oh, well, it's pretty much – Nothing. <laughs> no, right. no. Um, well, the Glenelg River comes in at Nelson yep. or just below Nelson. So I'm walking along from the uh, east and I was really happy to see that the mouth of the river was closed and so I – could walk oh, to yeah. South oh, Australia. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Amazing. Uh, but often, you know, you have to drive around and through South Australia to get to the yeah. actual yeah. border. And then after after we sort of you know, finish our little journey there, there's some, um, there's some chapters that actually look at coastal flora and fauna at the back. So there's one on birds, mammals and fish, or as we like to call them, charismatic megafauna. Um, <laughs> then, then there's sandy beaches. So that sort of covers your pippies and your, your, your bivalves, your typical bivalves. Then onto rocky shores, so mollusks growing on algal mats. And then there's some on larger seaweeds. Filter feeders, predators, and then the seaweeds themselves, trees, shrubs, and coastal plants. So it's a really nice little compact guide at the back because, um, I mean, I love guides. 
I love the really big sort of, you know, multi-chapter ones that sort of get right into the nuts and bolts. But it's it's nice having these just sort of, these are the common ones that you're most likely to see. Yeah, I've tried to focus on the things that people will uh, will probably see. But there are some rare species, especially on the heathlands behind Anglesey and Port Campbell, that are not so common and very beautiful. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Graham Patterson about his uh, third instalment in Coastal Guide to Nature and History. Um, just wanted to ask you before we wrap up, there's some, well, more just to mention that also, there's some, what I really love about it is it gets right down into, like you can tell you've done your research here because it gets right down into some really interesting facts about some significant landmarks like the 12 apostles that I didn't know. So, um, I'm just going to read from the section on the 12 Apostles, impressive line of rock stacks labelled sow and pigs on Latrobe's map from 1846. So they were originally called the sow and pigs. Yes, that's after a spot in Sydney Harbour, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and so dozens of apostles along this coastline. So there's not just 12. And, and as you say here, depending on how far you go, whether you include many that have been cut, or as you say here, cut off at the knees. Uh, but, yeah, really fascinating. Um, and uh, then there's another section that I wanted to mention as well, a town that I wasn't aware of called Codrington. Um, once populous enough to have a school and a post office, Codrington's now just a dot on a map and a wind farm. The name comes from a bushranger who hid in the dense forest in the area and robbed the mail coach three times in 1850. Codrington Revingstone was the name of one of his aliases. <laughs> the forest became known as Codrington's Forest and the name was used for a parish when it was surveyed in the 1870s. So these are really fascinating stories that you wouldn't know unless you read them in this book, Graham. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> well, I've just been looking at the first two and I've been completely distracted because <laughs> I've got a... So so oh, oh, and it's like, pay attention, Brett. Yeah, well, that's it. And you have so many. Oh, my yeah. when you're reading this, it's wonderful. Um, all right, let's get to the big question. Where can people get themselves a copy? Uh, well, it's it's in shops and information centres um, as soon as I can get it, get it in there. Um but it's also available through my website and I believe you're going to put a link to it on the... On our Facebook page. On the Facebook page, yep. yes. So we put up a Facebook um, a, a announcement about today's show and there's a there's a photo of the cover of this book. So if you click on that cover, don't do it now because I have to do it when I get home, <laughs> but you click on the cover of, uh, of the book and that will take you through to some text and, and there'll be a link there to, to your website where people can buy a book. A good Christmas present. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Highly recommended. Mm-hmm. And and then the final question, Graeme, is there going to be another one? Oh, I've, I've thought very carefully about this and I came to the conclusion, no. No? Because I haven't got enough years left in me. You too. <laughs> yes. I could probably write it, but then marketing it and distributing it yeah, and selling it. Bit. Takes for ages. Maybe we could put a call out there to listeners who might be interested in uh, in coming on board. And, Assisting. Yes, let's let's do a week round of help and, and try and get this happening. Thanks, Graham. It's been lovely speaking with you again. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, yeah, fantastic. We'll put a link to that on our Facebook page. Graham Patterson, uh, Coastal Guide to Nature and History 3, Western Victoria. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Big welcome to our, our, your ours, uh, coastal paleontologist Ben Francis Shelley. Awesome. Great. Welcome back. 
Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here today. So much to talk about. Oh my gosh, so much has happened in the last month. We have a very special listener, Edie Walker, who her favourite animal of all time is the Megalodon. And so I actually uh, I sent I sent a little message to her dad, Felix, yesterday, just giving her a little heads up that we were going to be talking about this. So tell us about the discovery of the last week and what's happened since we had you in last. Oh my goodness, where to even start? Well, there's the RV investigator. I got some images sent to me. They are uh, a big ship going off the coast of, um, where was it again? I think the Cocos Islands. Yes, Cocos Those kind of areas. They were dredging at a very deep depth of about 5,000 metres and they came up with some megalodon teeth right at the bottom of the seafloor. As to when that was dated, exactly how old it is, we've got exactly no idea because it's right from the bottom of the seafloor. I wish I could get down there, but there's just no physical way of me doing that. But I think what's more exciting, though, is that earlier in the month, I went to a locality about 45 minutes outside of Melbourne, and I have been trying for the last six years to find this mythical tooth called Atodus chubatensis. And <laughs> I finally, finally found it. Oh, my. Oh, no, you've slightly frozen. I think we've got you back. You've got me back yeah, there? Yeah, we got you back. Sorry, probably moving my head and too animated. Uh, you are. I'm so excited <laughs> so, right so, the, now. so the name of the – now, is this the name of the tooth or the name of the creature that the tooth came from? He's frozen He's again. frozen again. Oh, no. We, oh, we got you back. I'm back. Sorry, it's my internet here. It's dropping out, unfortunately, at the worst possible time, as per usual. Um, we'll try again there. Yeah, so the shark is called Etotus chubatensis. It's thought to be the ancestral precursor to the megalodon, and right. it was huge. We're talking 10, 12 metres in length, far bigger than the modern great white shark. And this tooth has just eluded me. I've been going to this one site since 2016, and a number of public collectors have been able to find these teeth, but they've never wanted to lodge them into the state collection for us to be able to study them. So we know of their existence. We know that they've been around. And then finally, earlier in the month, I was just walking, and I'll give you an idea of where, where the place is as well. It's like this moonscape in every single direction. It's white as far as the eye can see. It's about roughly the same size as the CBD of Melbourne, located 45 minutes out of Melbourne itself. I was walking over to see a colleague and I was yelling out to him, any luck? Have you found anything at all? And he's yelling back to me, no, nah, I haven't found anything. And as I was walking over to him, I see this jet black blade sticking out of the white sediment with these beautiful coarse serrations and I squeal. <laughs> it was just there. It was just waiting for you, Ben. And it was just on top of the sediment, ready to be picked up. Didn't even need any glue or anything like that. And the diagnostic feature that we can attribute to this specific shark species was still intact. So I did a bit of a dance. So what, I was very excited. So what is the diagnostic feature? What what was the that big Eureka moment? So with megalodon teeth, some of your listeners might be familiar with them. They're huge. They're about the same size as your head. They have these lovely little coarse serrations like a steak knife running all the way down the side of them, perfect for cutting through mammalian flesh. Lots of blood, right? The perfect <laughs> biological weapon for gouging out chunks of flesh from whales. The diagnostic feature... <laughs> you do over high time in the morning. It's awesome. Keep going, keep going. <laughs> The diagnostic feature for this specific tooth is another little cutting triangular edge on the blade. And we've never found that before on any of the teeth that we've been able to retrieve from this particular. Well, might just get you to turn your camera off, Ben. I reckon that might help us with um, bandwidth. 
There we go. Am I back again? You are, but we might get you to turn your camera off, and that might just help us to stop freezing because we're, we're getting we're getting to the real exciting part of the story. Yeah. So, uh, what was the last thing I said? I think it was, was I was I was describing the triangular edge of the blade itself, right? Oh yeah, blood and guts and yeah, blood and guts and all everywhere. that kind of stuff. Yep, yeah. Yep. So, um, and so the, these amazing looking teeth and the diagnostic feature for Chubatensis, of course, is this tiny little triangular corner right in the edge of the blade of the tooth, and it was there just sitting in front of it. But I do want to say as well that wasn't the most exciting find that I've had this month. Can I can I can I talk about that one? Yes, please. As well? What? There's yeah, more? yeah, no, but wait, there's still more. This, this steak knife analogy is just continuing. So, so Australia about fifty thousand years ago was home to a menagerie of these amazing megafauna, giant marsupials, some of which were the size of hippos, like Diprotodon opatum. Some were marsupial lions, like Thylacoleo, Carnifex. I went down to a locality, again, that I hadn't been down to for a very long time along the Mornington Peninsula in one of the back beaches. And um, I went with a few colleagues, and we found two large clusters of bone on the shore platform, probably dating anywhere between 50 to 500,000 years of age. Very difficult wow. to date. But I suspect that they're short-faced kangaroos. Oh, Wow. So what's next with that? We'll have to wrap up in just a sec, but um, will you look to get them properly identified? Yeah, so the next stage is making sure that I catalogue all this associated information that I've got of them, making sure all the photos are available to the state collection as well. And then from there, whether or not we can even extract them, because the rock is so hard, it's like cement. So we need to get rock sores if we ER even to attempt to take it out as well. But short-faced kangaroos are so wonderfully strange as well. I mean, imagine a kangaroo with a face like a pug. Some of them <laughs> got to 230 kilograms in weight, like that of Procopted on Goliath. One of the largest kangaroos that ever existed. And there's a big debate whether or not they even hopped or if they walked one leg at a time. Amazing. They're so, so strange. Amazing. Ben, we'll have to leave it there, but it's always a pleasure. Let's catch up with you again super soon. Absolutely. Apologies for the poor bad with there, but I'll talk to you next time. Ciao. Well, good. We'll try and catch you in a couple of weeks before we wrap up for the year. Um, thank you so much, Ben. Francis Shelley, thanks to Graham Patterson and also to Rex Hunter and Jim Anderson. It's been such a massive packed show. Thank you, Cabin Boy. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Rachel, very much for panelling for us today. Thank you, David, who will have this show up as a podcast. Next week, Anth will be in along with Farm. She's been away for a long time, so great to catch up with Farm and Neil as well. And Cabin Boy, you'll be back with me in two weeks time for our final marinara for 2022 i know the end is near <laughs> we get to sleep in on a sunday morning that's true I know, it's so exciting. <laughs> stay tuned for radio therapy have yourselves a wonderful sunday and uh, we'll catch you next week for more radio marinara bye, bye. Now. <sighs> that's right triple r Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.